0: Hello, welcome to the Quest series. My name is Alan Mulhan. This is Jung and Gnosticism, part B. This podcast emphasises the personal impact of the Gnostics on Jung. We will do this via his Seven Sermons to the Dead. My argument is as follows. Jung underwent an initiation in his confrontation with the unconscious. It was the Gnostic spirit and voice that inhabited him in the 1913-1917 to 1917 descent. The Gnostics lived a very powerful mystic tradition, and there are many metaphysical and mythological ideas which form a bridge to the transpersonal aspects of Jungian psychology. There is also much in analytical psychology which has little or nothing to do with Gnosticism and vice versa. The Gnostic influence on analytical psychology is therefore significant, though partial, but its personal influence on Jung was immense, since he experienced Gnosis through their spirit. Gnosis, the word means knowledge, refers to at least two dimensions. Firstly, inner contemplative or mystical knowledge. Secondly, knowledge of the drama of creation, our origin our present state, and where we are heading. Gnosticism, let us recall, was a widespread movement, especially situated between the shores of the Mediterranean and Persia, or modern-day Iran. It flourished around the time of Christ, and Gnostic and Christian sects intertwined. In some cases, Jesus was worshipped by Gnostics. Over the next few centuries, they diverged as the Christian church centralised and built a widespread following based on faith, an impressive array of sacraments, a clear ethical framework, and a belief that Jesus had died and rose again to redeem us from our sins. The Gnostics were increasingly rejected by the Christians, and after Constantine handed power to the reformed and centralised Christian church in the 4th century of the Common Era, they eliminated Gnosticism. This is all at the start of the Christian aeon or era. When Jung is writing, the Christian myth is in serious decline and we are at the end of this aeon. Jung's confrontation with the unconscious, as he called it, practically coincided with the First World War, a crisis of immense proportions. For those of you who worry about the crisis of the contemporary world, consider the enormity and barbarity of the 1914-1918 war. What did Young do? He went into a personal retreat, descended into the unconscious, tracked his visions, and went through, I shall argue, a Gnostic initiation ritual. Out of this, his subsequent work derived. This did not mean that Young stayed in isolation. I am not recommending that everyone should retreat from the crisis of the modern world. Quite the contrary. But it was Jung's dharma, vocation, calling, to seek his own vision within, and then come to the outer world, having found his own myth. He had a tremendous interest in the collective and the fate of humanity, and did all that was within his personal power to influence matters. However, I believe that there is a general lesson here also. Having the surety of one's own inner vision is a great advantage, when it comes to inserting oneself into the collective crisis of one's own times. One has an anchor and root, an inner voice and guide, instead of being thrown around in the storm of the crisis. Let's proceed, and this should become clearer. I now wish to look at the Seven Sermons to the Dead, the Septem Sermones Ad Mortuos, as Jung called it in the Latin title, written in 1916, and also... What happened to Young immediately after writing the sermons, which is written in the Red Book, very near the end? In 1916, some years into the confrontation with the unconscious, Young had a powerful fantasy that his soul had flown away from him. Then, and I paraphrase, he felt an urge to give shape to something to formulate and express what might have been said by Philemon to him in his evening descents into the unconscious. This was how the Septum Simonis Ad Mortuus, with its peculiar language, came into being. He writes, It began with a restlessness, but I did not know what it meant or what they wanted of me. There was an ominous atmosphere all around me, as if my house began to be haunted. Around 5pm in the afternoon on Sunday, The front doorbell began ringing frantically. Everyone immediately looked to see who was there, but there was no one in sight. We all simply stared at one another. The atmosphere was thick, believe me. Then I knew that something had to happen. The whole house was filled as if there was a crowd present, crammed full of spirits. They were packed deep right up to the door, and the air was thick. It was scarcely possible to breathe. As for myself, I was all a quiver with the question, for God's sake, what in the world is this? Then they cried out in chorus, we have come back from Jerusalem, where we found not what we sought. Then it began to flow out of me, and in the course of three evenings the thing was written. As soon as I took up my pen, The whole ghostly assemblage evaporated. The room quietened and the atmosphere cleared. The haunting was over. They came to him asking for teaching, knowledge of God, the universe and mankind. But here we have Young's own battle with his Christian heritage and a new principle emerging within him. Philemon, alias Simon Margus, Young's Gnostic spirit guide, is the teacher of the sermons, and the general authorship is given to Basilides, the 2nd century Gnostic. The main point is that the teachings that are given to the dead Christian souls are Gnostic. The spirits of the dead are not happy about this, because they are all Christians, unperfected as Philemon comments, that is, without Gnosis. Thus, the tension and dynamics of the relationship between Christianity and Gnosticism is played out on the historical stage of Jung's visionary imagination. This struggle between opposites is also because Jung sees himself poised between two aeons, that of Christianity and that of the times to come, where a renewed God-image is being constellated. Such states of transformed consciousness that Jung experienced in 1916 when he wrote The Seven Sermons are not literary inventions. Although Jung can embellish his narrations with striking literary effects, he was a great writer. Experiences such as these often emerge out of struggle, suffering and semi-breakdown states where there emerges another centre outside of ego consciousness that can reorganise all the psychological material in a new form and present it in an enormously compressed visionary state and which is felt to be a revelation of great significance. Frequently it feels as if another figure, spirit guide, god or muse is providing, dictating, transmitting or as we would say nowadays downloading information. If one reveres the mystic leader who has these experiences, like a god, then one takes everything as a revealed message. This is most unwise. How many cults have come apart at the seams because of this excessive idealisation? How many leaders have become narcissistically unhinged because of this adulation and the inflated impact of their visions? In 1916 young had been studying the gnostics for some time though not really understanding them because of the limited literature available nevertheless he instinctively felt deeply connected when the christian spirits required teaching what pours out of him as it were in a possessed or trance state were the seven sermons except these were not christian but gnostic both in form and content, both in the language that was used and the ideas they presented. This language style can speak in riddles. It is mantic, that is, prophetic, revelatory. It is paradoxical, enigmatic, seeming nonsensical, but suddenly wise, fascinating and ridiculous at the same time. Well, that is a very Gnostic style. As for the structure of the seven sermons, it consists of a question-and-answer format in which the spirits ask questions and make complaints, while the teacher, Philemon, Young's Deeper Psyche, gives a brief sermon on Gnostic teaching concerning the supreme God, the cosmos, the place of mankind, and so forth. These are Gnostic theology, very much with Young's unconscious twist to it, that is given to the Christian spirits. In other words, Jung's identification with Gnosticism is, at this stage, very intense. Their voice and spirit, buried, repressed, persecuted across the eons and practically extinguished, has now found its vehicle and speaks through him. This could have had an inflating impact on Jung, And he was aware of this. He comments that he was intoxicated by Philemon, who represents a divine power, superior insight, and gave him, quote, a language that was foreign to him and of a different sensitivity, unquote. What other questions or requests these Christian spirits have for Jung or Philemon, and what kinds of answers? or sermons, are given. First the spirits beseech his word. Then Philemon lifted his voice and taught them in the first Gnostic sermon about the Pleroma, which is beyond all opposites and is nothing and everything. It has the capacity to create everything, all of the distinctiveness of creatures and things in the cosmos. The qualities of the Pleroma are pairs of opposites, This was not exactly a very Christian conception, but just about recognisable. For example, that the Pleroma, was something like the Christian heaven. The Christian spirits then faded away, grumbling and moaning, and their cries died away in the distance. Second, the text reads that in the night the dead stood along the wall and cried, We would have knowledge of God. Where is God? Is God dead? In the second sermon, Philemon answers that God is alive and is the pleroma itself, as likewise, each smallest point in the created and uncreated is also the pleroma. If the pleroma could be manifested in being, it would be Abraxas, who is pure and generalized effect in the cosmos. That is, brings the cosmos into being. Now this is a different conception of God than is offered in Christianity. The text reads, At the end of the sermon, the dead raised a great tumult, for they were Christians. Abraxas, by the way, is a name of a god of Egyptian origin, transmitted through the Greek mystery rites and incorporated into some Gnostic texts. For those of you who are acquainted with the Gnostic literature, you will notice the difficulty with Jung's elevation of Abraxas at this point and his later acceptance of the general Gnostic position that Abraxas is the Demiurge, that is, the creator of this world and cosmos and is therefore a subordinate god. However, let's not complicate matters too much at this point. Thirdly, like mists arising from the marsh, the dead came near and cried... Speak further unto us concerning the supreme God. Philemon in the third sermon instructs them in greater detail on Abraxas. The Christian spirits are clearly angry. Now the dead howled and raged, for they were incomplete. Fourthly, the dead filled the place, murmuring and said, Tell us of the gods and devils, accursed one. Philemon, in the fourth sermon, instructs them that the God-son, S-U-N, is the highest good, and the devil is the opposite. Thus ye have two gods. Also that the multiplicity of the gods corresponds to the multiplicity of man. Here the dead interrupted Philemon with angry laughter and mocking shouts. Fifthly, the Christian spirits, outraged by such paganism, now mock and cry, Teach us, fool, of the Church and Holy Communion. But in the fifth sermon, Philemon refuses to teach Christian orthodoxy, and instead preaches on spirituality and sexuality. These are presented as external daemons by Philemon thus Quote, "Spirituality and sexuality are not your qualities, not things which ye possess and contain, for they possess and contain you. for they are powerful demons, manifestations of the gods, and are, therefore, things which reach beyond you, existing in themselves. No man hath a spirituality unto himself. Or a sexuality unto himself, but he standeth under the law of spirituality and sexuality. No man, therefore, escapeth these daemons. This is pure paganism for the Christians. Actually, it is quite contemporary also. Philemon next gives a totally different view on what communion really means, and there is no reference to the communion of the Mass. That is the Eucharist. When Philemon had finished, the dead, surprisingly, remained silent and did not move, but looked at Philemon with expectation. So he continues. In the sixth sermon, on the theme of sexuality in a similar pagan manner. And when he had finished, with disdainful glance, the dead spake, Cease this talk of gods and daemons and souls. Seventhly, yet when night was come, the dead again approached with lamentable mien and said, There is yet one matter we forgot to mention. Teach us about man. Philemon replies in the seventh sermon, with more on the mankind-abraxas relationship. This sermon is even more enigmatic and mysterious than the previous six, if such were possible. Mankind is presented as a gateway to the gods, which implies that man even creates its gods. It seems to refer to a state after individual death, or even of the death of humanity itself, in a post-existence condition. At an immeasurable distance, a lonely star stands in the zenith. There is the one God of this one man. This is his world, his Pleroma, his divinity. One is reminded of the Gnostic journey through the Archons after death in order to reach the Pleroma, the source of all light. Young at this point had absorbed very thoroughly the central Gnostic themes of complete alienation from this world and a belief in an unknown God far off in the Pleroma, to which we humans are related. Much of the Gnostic cosmogony consists of dramatic stories, how this came to be, how we are derived from the light of the Pleroma but are immersed in the darkness of this world. The 7th Sermon finishes with verses similar actually to lines from the Rig Vedas. Quote, Man here, God there. Weakness and nothingness here. There, eternally creative power. Here, nothing but darkness and chilling moisture. There, holy sun. Unquote. Young's literary flourish at the departure of the spirits is as follows. Whereupon the dead were silent and ascended like the smoke above the herdsman's fire, who, through the night, kept watch over his flock. Mm. The metaphor is, of course, open-ended. But one can feel the care for the flock. And one suspects that Young is reversing the usual Christian presentation. Christ or the church as shepherd and the flock as the faithful Christian believers. So that it is now Philemon, the Gnostic, who is caring for the flock. Who represent the reception of the Gnostic vision. In the Red Book, at the end of the sermons, Young himself beseeches Philemon thus. Illustrious one Will you give me the dark and golden treasure and its blue starlight? And Philemon replies, When you have surrendered everything that wants to burn to the holy flame. In other words, Young is asking Philemon for gnosis, enlightenment. And Philemon replies, That complete surrender is required. The text goes on in the red book young is now given a vision of a dark form with golden eyes who frightens him and says he is the death that rose with the sun which is to say that he is a death and rebirth principle in the soul young is then given a magnificent vision philemon touches his eyes and opens his gaze and he has shown an immeasurable mystery of the dark earth and the starry heavens, in the form of a woman, covered by a sevenfold mantle of stars. Philemon requests the goddess that young be her child, and asks that she accept his birth. One is reminded of the Egyptian nut, who is a goddess of the Milky Way and arches over her brother Geb, the earth god. Young is now on the verge of initiation and rebirth into the feminine mysteries of which love is the passage. Philemon continues addressing the goddess of the night sky. You gave birth to the godly serpent. You released it from the pangs of birth. Take this man to the abode of the sun. He needs the mother. Which signifies, in my view, that Jung is being initiated into the Gnostic Orphite tradition, which came through Egypt and into Greece and the Near East and consists in a healing rite and rebirth through this world, its nature and instincts, its sorrows and sufferings, into the higher spheres through love. The Orphites worshipped the serpent who was the source of knowledge for Adam and Eve, and is the source of Gnosis in the mysteries. It is also one of the emblems of the great mother. The text continues, And a voice came from afar, and was like a falling star. That is the voice of the goddess. I cannot take him as a child. He must cleanse himself first. Philemon asks, What is his impurity? But the voice of the goddess says, It is the commingling. He contains human suffering and joy. He shall remain secluded until abstinence is complete and he is freed from the commingling with men. Then shall he be taken as a child. Commingling means the mixing. In this moment, Young tells the reader, My vision ended and Philemon went away and I was alone and I remained apart, as I had been told. Notice that Jung's impurity that requires cleansing is not sin, which would have been the Christian tradition, but his human emotions, joy and suffering, and connections and attachments, his commingling, which is almost to say his earthly personality. This requires purging through abstinence, so that he should be apart from men, so that he can become a child again. In other words, magnificent though his vision is, the starry cosmos and the great mother, his initiation is not quite complete at this stage. She requires something else from him. Incidentally, we know there were different stages to the Elysian Mysteries, for example. So the same is probably true for the Orphites and other Gnostic sects also that there were stages of the initiation. Young is told now to abstain and purify himself. The text of the Red Book continues, however on the fourth night he has a subsequent vision of a man in a turban who comes to speak to him of healing, the art of women and the man then turns into Philemon who tells him you have not experienced the dismembering you should be blown apart and shredded, and scattered to the winds. What will remain of me, Young cries. Nothing but your shadow, Philemon replies. Young asks in grief, but where will my uniqueness remain? And Philemon answers, you will have to steal it from yourself. Here, Young is instructed, that for his healing to take place, the old personality must die. Notice how close this is to Taoism, Buddhism and the world's perennial philosophies and great mystic traditions. Which have always taught this process. One can see how analytical psychology, as Jung was to develop it, also requires the replacement of the old personality based on the ego and the reorientation to the self. It's just really a change of language. Young comments that I gathered from Philemon's words that I must remain true to love to cancel out the commingling that arises through unlived love. I understand that the commingling is a bondage that takes the place of voluntary devotion. Deprivation and emotional wounding and even trauma would be modern terms for this. Jung recognises that true devotion will involve a dismembering so that he can bond with the Great Mother. He must be first unbonded, dismembered from mankind and things. Here, the instruction for the Gnostic initiation is given. The initiate will unite with the Great Mother, the stellar deity, by being unlinked to personality and the world. There is a descent, a dismemberment, a giving up of the world, with the path of resurrection and love clearly indicated afterwards. Through Jung's descent, one can see the Gnostic initiation myths, the mystery schools of ancient Greece that were pre-Socratic and before the Age of Reason, that permeated the Middle East with the worship of the Great Mother and stretched back to ancient Egypt and from there into prehistory where humanity had experienced the mysteries as a descent into the earth and a rebirth into the sky. Know that you are from the stars as well as from the earth. The cosmos is a mighty womb. To all it does give birth. One also senses here how the Christian drama of the Passion of Christ, so similar in essentials to the above ritual, is a version of... Of these ancient Gnostic mystery rites, Young had his gnosis through the Gnostic initiation rites, which he glimpsed in their writings, and which were triggered in him by the extent of the crisis he was in personally, and the enormous crisis of his times. His spirit guide, trance state, active imagination, and descent are also giving a Gnostic answer to the Christian crisis. It's there quite clearly in the sermons, which are a sharp dialogue between the dead spirit of Christianity and the resurrected spirit of Gnosticism through Young via Philemon, alias Simon Margus, and Basilides. Since Young describes his 1913-17 descent as the creative core from which everything else flowed, the later creations being the mere outward classification of the immense inner experience which burst upon him and which he recorded in the Red Book, Liber Novus, and the Seven Sermons. Then it follows that Gnosticism, at first in the indirect texts that were available to him, and then in his experience of Gnosis, through his initiation, was to have an immense impact upon him personally and then through him upon his whole opus. Apart from the impact on Jung, we certainly have plenty to think about with respect to the relevance of the Gnostic mysteries to the crisis of our own times and our relationship to this almost lost religion.